Amen. Lord, we do ask that you would just uh, let the amen sound from your people again. I love that line. Um, We long to worship you, Lord. We love to worship you. We thank you for creating us for this, um, not just to sing, but, but to abide, to be satisfied in, to delight in you and your love for us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would please help us this morning. Every week, God, it's just the same. Just the same thing every week and every day uh, and every hour, and that is we need you. We need you so desperately. Um, So, once again, Lord, today, please help. Help us. We love you. We thank you for this time that we get to spend together. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning, you can have a seat. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Please go to John 15. Uh, as Scott mentioned in the intro, there's a lot in this chapter. We're, we're primarily just going to be focusing on the first 17 verses and this all-important metaphor that Jesus gives to us of the vine and the branches. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Let's pray one more time. God, again, help this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Please give me words to speak in the moment that I need it, and please let there be a freedom uh, in this place right now uh, to accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So once again, as we've been looking at this passage over the last couple of weeks, uh, known as the Upper Room Discourse, just a few hours, one evening, uh, the night that Jesus is going to be arrested and betrayed, it's all one long conversation, and John spends about a quarter of his entire gospel on it. And uh, the mood is one of intimacy and yet intensity, because this, his arrest is looming. Um, we talked a little bit last week, the, this transition is beginning to happen where the darkness of the sin of the world, the wrath of God, is beginning to be placed upon him. Um, and of course, we'll come uh, to the precipice of that moment uh, for those six hours on the cross uh, the next day. Um, yet here, th- this, all these words in this uh, section of the Upper Room Discourse are of the utmost importance and, and kind of in a special way because Jesus is, of course, like he, he knows this is it. And again, he knows that he's going to eventually be resurrected and he'll talk with the disciples again. They don't know that, but, but they are they're in turmoil right now, and, and these are very um, important moments, and, and it's just interesting that in this time of all the things that he could talk about, one of the things that he wants to talk about in these moments is grapes, grapes, or fruit, as he puts it here. Um, this metaphor of the vine and the branches is uh, of the utmost importance. If you, you don't have to, but if you had to, pick just one image or metaphor for the Christian life, uh, I would argue that this, would, this should maybe be the pick. Okay? Um, again, Jesus is very intentional in choosing what he wants to talk about with his disciples in these final moments before his betrayal and sacrifice uh, on our behalf. And so I, I want us, it's not that I don't want us to get it every week, but I say this morning, like, I really want us to try to get this, okay? And I, you know, week to week, if I can just be kind of transparent in preparing a message, I, uh, you, you do this for a while, you can't help but just like, begin to like outline a passage or like make your points alliterated or make them, you know, rhyme or something or put things together. And I just, um, not that that's wrong, but for this passage this morning, I just wanted to try to just strip everything away and just ask, ask like the most fundamental investigative type of questions that we could. So I'm just going to kind of ask some questions, then I'm going to answer them. I'm going to ask what why and how. A couple different what questions, some how, or some why questions, and then some how questions. And then actually at the end of the sermon, we're going to just end kind of, I don't know if it'll be clunky or not, but uh, I'm actually going to take, we're going to do some Q&A at the end. Is that okay? James Miller's licking his chops. He's like, I've been waiting to... Um, but at the end of the sermon, I'm just, so I'm just going to kind of like teach this. I'm just approaching this a little bit different. It might not seem different to you, but I just want to kind of approach this as a little bit more of like a classroom setting this morning and just uh, try to unpack this, this metaphor as best I can. And then as we do this, though, and as we go through it, and hopefully as you've been reading it this week, if you have any questions, um, we'll take some time for a few questions at the end about this passage. And again, I'm also good with doing questions as long as they don't let the kids out. I'll take questions from adults, questions from kids. They always stump me. And so 
we're going to keep the kids sequestered up there. Um, <coughs> but here, so here, here's just a couple things. First, the what. The what. Number one, what, what is this metaphor intended to communicate? Answer. It is intended to be a picture or metaphor of our union with Christ. Okay? It is intended to be a picture of our union, our relationship with him. Now, um, this is not a new idea, but it is a clarifying image. This idea of our union with Christ is precisely what Jesus has been speaking about up up until this point. If you go back into chapter 14, just very quickly, verse 3, he says, I will go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again, and I will take you to myself, okay? And I said last week, this is most likely like the image of of a groom taking a bride to himself. Um, Chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, again, this mingling of the Father and the Son and us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Again, they're speaking of himself and the Father and how they are one. Yet he's spoken his words to us so that we can be one with him and with the Father. Going down a few verses later, verses 20 and 21. He says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now again, I say all that because Jesus is not introducing a new idea here, but he's giving a clarifying image, okay? He's been speaking already of our union with Christ. That is what this is meant to represent. Now, second what question, what are the parts? What are the different parts of this metaphor or of this picture? Well, there's, there's three primary parts, okay? There's the true vine, the vine dresser, and the branches. Okay, verse one, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, this is the, the last, the seventh and last statement of Jesus' I am statements in the Gospel of John. We saw another one last week where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here he says, I am the true vine. Now, why do, what, what does he mean by this, the true vine? Well, um, there's definitely, this, this, this uh, metaphor is not coming out of a vacuum, okay? Throughout the Old Testament, again and again and again, uh, the nation of Israel is referred to as God's vine or as his vineyard, okay? Now, the nation of Israel um, was, uh, was consistently throughout their, their history rebellious, and so God would show them mercy again and again and again. And one of the things that Jesus is doing here, kind of big picture, is that he is coming now as the better Israel. So in the same way, back in chapter 13, with the Lord's Supper, what does that replace? It was a replacement of Passover. And now Jesus is coming, and it's not about Passover anymore. He's saying, I am the substance to which the shadow pointed. Okay? So in the same way, not Passover, but now the Lord's Supper, because Jesus is the ultimate um, substance of what all those little shadows pointed to. In the same way here, he's saying, it's not about Israel. Israel was always about pointing to me. I'm the better, I'm the true, I'm the perfect Israel. Okay? Um, and so he's saying here, I am the true vine. 
I am the true vine. Okay, you can find those places um, where he speaks in the Old Testament of Israel as God's vine. Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Isaiah 27, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 19, and uh, and the first couple verses of Hosea chapter 10. Let me just read one of them to you. Isaiah chapter 5. Okay, speaking of Israel as God's vineyard. (coughs) He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Excuse me. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with, a, with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, which were like not good grapes, uh, poisonous grapes, grapes he couldn't eat. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? That I have not done for it. When I looked for it to, to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that no, that no rain shall rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. In other words, that would have been a good fruit that he was looking for in his vineyard. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, another good fruit. But behold, there was an outcry of injustice. Okay, And so I say all that because Jesus is very much uh, doing something big picture here. In now saying that it's not just about Israel, it's about him as the better Israel and all those who believe in him. So now that Jesus has come, and it, um, it, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter where you come from. The way you become rightly related to the Father is by believing in the true vine. Okay, So the Muslim person, uh, or that grows up Muslim or Arab, but believes in Jesus... Is, rightly, is more rightly related to God than the national-born Jewish person who has not trusted Jesus as their Savior. It's all about Jesus, and it always has been. Everybody needs to believe in Jesus. Um, secondly, you have the vine dresser. This is probably the most overlooked uh, aspect of the parable, and we'll, or, or the metaphor, rather, and we'll talk more about this as we, we go, but obviously here at the end of verse one, I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the vine dresser. So the vine dresser or the gardener, the vine worker, is God the father. And this is a wonderful image, and we'll talk more about it because this uh, is important that God the father is walking through his vineyard. And what does the gardener want? He wants the vine and the branches to be healthy. Okay? And so God is working for us to be fruitful. And then second, or thirdly, rather, we have the branches. Um, he says in verse two, every branch of me that does not bear fruit. Now he doesn't identify it though until verse five where he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, there's, there's much debate um, in, in regarding the branches. I would say, it is those who, who are the branches. It is all those who believe in Jesus. However, um, 
it's even alluded to here is that there are true branches, those who have truly trusted in Jesus, and those who have not truly trusted in Jesus. Now, in the immediate context, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago in, verse, in, our, in chapter 13, is that in the immediate context, the most glaring example of this would be Judas. Is that Judas seemed to be a branch rightly attached to the vine, but he never was. Um, in John chapter 6, and, and it wasn't, again, Judas was kind of the, the worst of these because he was in Jesus' inner, inner circle. But this has kind of always been the case. In John chapter 6, uh, Jesus just gets done saying some hard things, and he says, um, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And people are like, right, what, what's he talking about? This is a hard thing. Who can understand it? And then John chapter 6, starting in verse 63, it says, it is the, he, Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then John gives this parenthetical clause here and commentary on it. And John says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. So Judas, even though he seemed to be one of the legit branches, he was not. Um, in the same way then, as I'd already I explained, it would also seem that just national Israel, uh, even at this time, would, would be true branches, but, but they're not. It's all about do you have saving faith in Jesus Christ? And this has always been the case. John, the apostle that writes this, uh, this gospel, also writes the epistle of 1 John. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, they went, speaking of people that had, had seemed to be real branches, but they weren't. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. Right? So this, is, this has always been, been the case, is that it's possible to seem like you're a branch that's attached to the vine, but not actually be abiding. And if you're understanding what I'm saying, you're like, that's kind of heavy. Well, good, that's, that means you're understanding it right. It's not by works. It's by grace through faith. But there have always been and there will always be those that seem to be branches but are not. Um, and so you've got the true vine, you've got the vine dresser, and then you have, and then you have the branches. Um, another what question, just, just very quickly, what is fruit? What is fruit? Jesus talks a lot about fruit here, verse 2, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, like going on, he says, if he bear, uh, those branches that do bear fruit, that they may bear more fruit, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is that bears much fruit. Verse 8, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Um, here's how I would like to define fruit. I'd like to define it two ways. On the one hand, it's, it's just love. Okay, um, the, That's not wrong. It's, it's a little bit simplistic in this sense, and it's especially simplistic in our culture, is because the word love, especially to our ears, means almost nothing, right? We, we, we love our wife and we love our dog, 
We love our kids and we love that pizza. The word love is a junk drawer word to us. And so it, it needs to be more rightly defined. And, um, and so while love is, is, I'm not denying that fruit is, the ultimate fruit is just love. Here's what I'd like to say. Is that fruit are attitudes and actions done through the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father that make us look like Jesus. Let me give that to you again. What is fruit? They are attitudes and actions done through the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father that make us look like Jesus. So, he, so he's been speaking, again, in, in chapter 14 of the Holy Spirit, the helper, the counselor, um, who's going to come and be with us, okay? And so, uh, and again, now this is just a clarifying image of what he's been speaking of and how we're going to be how we're going to be one with him. And then in verse eight, I say to the glory of the Father, okay, so it's done by the power of the Spirit, to the glory of the Father that make us look like Jesus. Again, verse eight, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So this fruit that Jesus wants to produce in us and is, and is, and is putting a, uh, an expectation on his disciples and on, and on us that if we're truly his people, we should bear fruit. This fruit doesn't bring glory to us doesn't make much of us, but it makes much of God. And this is the difference between fruit and rotten fruit, or you might call counterfeit fruit, okay? Is that there's a lot of counterfeit fruit in the world, but in the end, it seems like something's happening, and oh, look at you know, these guys, and look at what they're doing, but is it bringing much glory to God or to man? The fruit that the Spirit wants to produce is to the glory of the Father, and then the last part of verse 8 by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and then, and so prove to be my disciples. A disciple wanted to be just like the rabbi. Disciple means learner. We're trying to be just like Jesus. And so again, let me give it to you again. What is fruit? They are attitudes and actions done through the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father that make us look like Jesus. That's what it is. Very quickly, some examples of this, some practical examples. There's many. But in the book of Acts, now that Jesus has ascended, the Spirit has descended and come down and filled every believer. Just some random, there's a million different ways that this could look, okay? Again, attitudes and actions done through the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father that make us look like Jesus. But Acts chapter 4, verse 13. They, uh, Peter and John are being um, interrogated by the religious and political authorities and they're threatening them, but they stand up and they say, hey, we're going to listen to God rather than men. And then it says, chapter 4, verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been like Jesus. That boldness, and they're testifying to the truth that they're going to obey God rather than men, that was an attitude and action done by the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father that made them look like Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen has just stood up again and testified before uh, a bunch of religious folks that thought they would have been true branches, but were not because they've not believed in Jesus. And he preaches a convicting message, and they begin to stone him and gnash their teeth at him. 
And it says in Acts chapter 7, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He does it in the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father. And again, very much looking like Jesus because that's almost exactly what Jesus said as he hung on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. So they don't know what they're doing. One more, uh, an action and attitude done by the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father, making us look like Jesus. Acts chapter 16, um, uh, Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel in Philippi. They end up getting thrown in jail. Uh, It says in verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted not a few, but many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And verse 25, attitudes and actions that bring glory to the Father, but through the power of the Spirit. It says, in about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Those are just a few examples. And not all of them need to be nearly that dramatic, but fruit are attitudes and actions done by the Spirit to the glory of the Father that make us look like Jesus. Okay, so there's our what, what it's intended to communicate, what are the different parts What is fruit? Moving on to some why questions. Number one, why does this matter? Why does this matter? I've touched on it already in verse eight, but the reason it matters, or if you might ask it this way, like like, uh, what's at stake um, in this? The glory of God. The glory of God. Again, verse eight, is that God intends to be glorified in his people by having them bear fruit through their union with Christ. And here's the thing, if you know anything about the glory of God as it's taught throughout Scripture, God doesn't play with his glory, folks. He's not playing games. He's not playing games. He is bold in saying, I will not share my glory with another. Not because he's some sort of an insecure narcissist, but because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the truth is, there is nobody glorious like him. Nobody. For him to make much of someone else would be a lie, would be a falsehood. There is nobody glorious like the Father. In fact, he he alone is glorious. Nothing can compare to him. And he has intended to be glorified in his people by having them bear fruit through their union with Christ. So that's why this matters, and it's central to all of the Christian life. Now, a second question, though. 
is why should we have confidence that we can be fruitful? Because here is, it's not always explicitly stated, but many Christians carry this attitude, okay? Is we think that it's spiritual, that it sounds really super spiritual and that we're just being humble if we just say things like, oh, no, I don't, I could never bear any fruit because, you know, I'm not one of those super Christians and, you know, that's for the pastors, the missionaries, the Billy Grahams, you know, whatever we like to throw out here. Listen, I'm not talking about arrogance, but I am talking about confidence. God, Jesus here, tells us that he wants us to bear fruit. And we should be confident that this is going to happen because this is God's will for our lives. And that is not arrogance, that's just the truth. And again, if you understand it rightly, there's no need to even be having the conversation about about, uh, arrogance or pride on any level because it is the Spirit of God that produces it through us to the glory of the Father. And just simply makes us look like Jesus. But why should we have confidence that we can be fruitful? I want you to have confidence that you can be fruitful. The first reason is, and again I've already touched on this, is that the Father intends this to be so. Who's the Father again in the metaphor? He is the vine dresser. The most powerful being in all of the universe is walking through his vineyard. And he intends to help every true branch that has believed in him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, he intends to help you be fruitful by making sure that you are rightly attached to the vine. Now, he does this, I believe, in, in, in two different ways. Um, again, there's some debate on this. Go back to verse 2. Okay, it's, He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes. So you got two things going on here. Now, the debate is in verse 2, uh, the beginning of verse 2, where he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This is the Greek word arrow. If you've read any commentaries or books on this, there, there, there's a great debate. It doesn't ultimately matter. Um, but the word arrow, uh, uh, or arrow, it is, uh, where is it here? It is, um, it's used 24 times in the book of John. And the majority of those times, it is translated as take away. However, eight of those times, it is, it is also translated as take up. Take up, okay? It's also used throughout the New Testament 102 times, I believe. Yeah, 102 times. But the majority of those times, throughout the scope of the entire New Testament, the majority of the times, it is translated take up rather than take away. So depending on the context, it can either be translated take up or take away. Now, the reason, where the debate lies is, is he speaking here of some sort of judgment in taking away? I tend to not think so, although it doesn't ultimately matter for the point that I'm going to make. But the point is this, is that every, all of us as branches in the true vine, if we've been truly born again, we do not for all of our life naturally just bear fruit. Okay, we are we still have sin that exists within us. Okay, and that's what that's what's coming someday. Glorification. That sin will be eradicated, gone forever. When we see him, we will be like him. Okay, sinless. It's gonna be it's gonna be amazing, but it's not coming till glory. Okay, but but this idea here of of arrow and and taking away the reason why I think it means take up is because like we need a category for this. I don't know that anybody wants to stand and testify, yeah, ever since I've been born again, whoo, been nothing but fruit in my life. 
All the time. 24-7. Fruit, 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 fruit. Grapes, 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 grapes. That's hard to say three times fast, by the way. Anyway, it doesn't exist. And I think that what Jesus is speaking of here is the Father as the gardener walking through and those branches that tend to grow down towards the ground and not get enough sunlight and want to get dirty. He goes through and he picks them up and he rightly ties them to the trellis so that they'll be better, more vitally connected to the true vine so that the life and nutrients can flow into it, okay? And so very practically speaking, what I'm talking about here is the, the, the ways that the Father works to make us fruitful are two things. One, through discipline and through pruning. Discipline and pruning. Hear me, when I speak of discipline, I am not speaking of God's wrath. The wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus. That's what happened. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But when I speak of discipline, listen, I ain't gonna lie, like at times, it will absolutely hurt. You will feel like you've gotten spanked. All right? It's not fun. But listen to how the writer of Hebrews speaks about the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. He says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And, you, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, be, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Here's what's going to happen today after church. I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you this is going to happen, okay? After church, the kids will be released, and they will be running around down here, Okay? Now, almost guaranteed, little Jordy, our nine-year-old, will be with some of his buddies, and they will be flying around down, down here, and I'm going to say, there's going to be a group of them, but here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, Jordan, don't run. And he's going to look at me, he's going to slow down for a second. Okay, Dad. And then I'm going to watch him, and he's going to slowly pick back up, and he's going to go again. And I'm probably going to have to say it again. Now, why am I not yelling at the group? Why am I just yelling at Jordan? Because he's my son. That's who I'm responsible for. If you are God's son, if you are his daughter, in love, he disciplines you. And don't miss this. It, being disciplined by God is not a bad thing. It is proof. It is one of the ways that we have assurance that we belong to him. It is proof of our, of our sonship. He goes on in verse 7, he says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father has not disciplined? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So, he helps us to be connected to the vine through discipline when we're not fruitful. fruitful. And again, the reason this is different, it's not the same thing as pruning, is at the end of this verse, and every branch in me that does bear fruit. So there's two, two different kinds of branches here. Ones that don't be, aren't, aren't bearing fruit, so that need discipline, loving correction in some way. But then there are branches that bear fruit, and, but the fruitful ones are the ones that are getting pruned. What is the point of, why would you prune a fruitful one? That it may bear more fruit. Again, God is very serious about his glory, and he is intended to be glorified through his people bearing fruit as they are rightly attached and abide in the vine. And so he sees fruit, and he's like, man, that's good, but he's not just satisfied with fruit. He wants more fruit. 
And so he will prune us. What is pruning? Pruning, if I it could just touch on it quickly, um, it's the idea of cutting away whatever is non-essential in your life. And this happens, again, not to the unfruitful, but to the fruitful. And sometimes we're bearing fruit, things are going, things are going well, and it seems to be good, and all of a sudden, th- it seems to be removed. Maybe an opportunity goes away that you had, and you thought it was a ministry. It, it seemed to be like a good ministry opportunity. Maybe it's just all of a sudden some things that uh, you, you, you were spending some time in and it seemed to be going good, but all of a sudden some of those fall away and you're like, well, God, what, what do you want from me? You're being pruned. And the, the intention here is not discipline, although it might feel that way, but it's because you are fruitful and he wants you to be more fruitful. So one of the reasons that we, why can we have confidence that we will be fruitful, this is what the Father's doing. The most powerful being in all the universe is working for this purpose. We have every reason to be confident. Secondly, the other reason why we should have confidence that we can be fruitful is that we were recreated in Christ for this exact purpose. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide or remain. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Is that we were created in Christ for this purpose. The Father is working for this purpose, and we were rightly made for this purpose. If I could just mix the metaphors here and move from uh, vine and branches to modern day appliances for just a second, okay? My toaster should not lack confidence that it can make toast. My coffee maker should not be insecure about whether or not it can make coffee. My freezer should not anxiously wonder if it can keep things cold. It was intended, it was made, it was designed, it was created for that purpose. The question is, are they plugged in? Are they plugged in? And so now, I don't want to be confusing, I know I'm mixing metaphors, modern day appliances, let's go back to the branches for a second, okay? When I say plugged in, what do I mean? Abide. Abide. That's it. Okay? So now, how? Let's ask a how question. Really just one and answer it several different ways. How do we do this? How do we abide? How do we abide? First of all, we need to define this word a little bit. It is the Greek word meno. It is translated a lot of different ways in English and used quite a few times throughout the Greek New Testament. The various ways that it is translated in English are this, to stay, to wait, remain, to continue to exist, to endure in, to keep on, to tarry, to reside, to dwell, or to lodge with. And that's not even exhaustive. And again, when you see, you're like, why did they do that? Why couldn't they just pick one? Because not just one fully gives the nuance of this word. Um, Let me try to illustrate it. We we have four boys, and, you know, they play sports and stuff. And so we go through these seasons throughout the year, depending if it's like basketball or soccer season, mainly for our boys, as to whether or not we can just chill on Saturdays, okay? Okay. Uh, spring soccer, Worcester League for the little guys is getting ready to start up. 
And uh, it's good. It's good. We, we love it. We enjoy it. We have our little routine we do. We go up. We try to grab a Starbucks beforehand. We go over, have our little lawn chair, sit down, watch the, you know, soccer games or whatever. But the games are always in the morning. And it's good. We, we love it. We love watching our kids play sports. It's fun. But man, I love those Saturday mornings. <laughs> I love those Saturday mornings. And Hannah and I usually, it, it like, the busy Saturday mornings where there's sports or something are usually more than the Saturday mornings where there isn't. And so we even on like a Friday night, we're like, we, we don't have anything tomorrow. <laughs> we! <laughs> and so you know what we do? We don't set an alarm. Oh, thank you, Lord. And we just get up when we get up, which is still too early, unfortunately, usually. But and we just go down, and one of us goes down and makes coffee. And then we just sit on the couch. She's always on the right. Do you have your own spots on the couch with your spot? Anyway, she's always on the right side of the couch. I'm always on the left. And we get a few sips. And we kind of look at each other. This is nice. <laughs> it's what we do. It, I hope this works for you. But that's what abiding is. You, you wake up and you're just there. Because you were created to do this in Christ. If I could say it this way, we have to understand that abiding is not so much something that we strive to attain as it is something that we were perfectly fitted to do. Let me say that again. We have to understand that abiding is not so much something that we strive to attain as it is something that we were just perfectly fitted to do. That folks, in Christ, this is the gospel, is that you, you were made for this. How do I become a branch? Well, have you believed in Jesus? Yeah, you're a branch. You, it's your identity. It's who you are. And, and here's why this really matters and why I think we miss it why we have a hard time abiding, is that like everything else, especially in our culture, we, um, we think that it's something that we're always having to strive to attain. And the, the life of discipleship, okay, so like reading your Bible, prayer, and again, we're, we're going to talk about those things here in just a second. Going to small church, taking a knee to course, coming on Sunday mornings, being in a discipleship group, going on a missions trip. The life of discipleship is not an attempt to get near to God. The life of discipleship is in response to the good news that God came near. Are you with me? See, don't miss the gospel in this. Jesus came near. And yet, yeah, let's, we'll roll right into it here, okay? There are my next couple how points. But yeah, pray, read your word, all, all, that, all that stuff. But that's not making you a branch. That's not getting you nearer to him. He came near. And it's his gift to us that he's made us for this purpose, to just sit like we do on a Saturday morning and just be with him every day. Amen? Okay. So we got to understand what it is. Secondly, 
very practically, we must abide in his word and we must abide in prayer. Look at verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then notice how he rolls right into prayer. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, I, you know, why didn't you list these separate? Word and prayer. I so, I so want you to, if there's one practical thing I want you to hear this morning, it's this. I want you to try to stop thinking about the word and prayer as two separate things. And I want you to think about them as one thing, because they are. Let me give you some other words that encapsulate both things that the Bible uses. Fellowship, communion, worship. It's what this is. We, like everything else in our culture, we have these weird compartments. Um, we compartmentalize things. I'm doing my word and prayer. It's, it's one thing. It's a relationship. It's communion. It's fellowship with the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. You cannot separate them. And listen, you are only going to be as strong in prayer as you are in the word and you are only going to be as strong in the word as you are in prayer. It's very true. Now hear me. Well, Eric, I don't have a PhD in, in you know, systematic theology, so you're saying I can't be a good prayer. No, no, no. That's not what I mean by strong in the word. What I mean is, do you read it and do you believe it? Do you believe it? Are you clinging to the promises of God such a way that you say, this is my life. I need this more than I need bread, physical bread today. I need this word. And again, to, to have the word transform us, it is a work of the Spirit. That's why just a classroom setting, just academia itself, even if you're studying this word, is not going to change you. It is a work of the Spirit taking the word and using it in our life. And as we pray and ask the Spirit for illumination, for understanding, that is when the Word of God changes us. And I'm telling you, some of you will grow by leaps and bounds if you can just destroy that one paradigm in your head that prayer and the Word are two separate things and just make them one, okay? So that's very practically how to abide. Um, I, yeah, we'll keep going here. I have some practical things on that, but maybe we'll hit them in the, in the Q&A. Um, next, another practical thing, if we're going to abide in him, we not only need to abide in his word, but we need to abide in his love, okay? We need to abide in his love. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, abide in my love. So he says, you got to abide in me, you got to abide in the vine, and then he says, you got to abide in my word and in prayer, and then he says, and now you have to abide in my love. So he's just getting more specific. When we talk about Abiding in Christ, we have to abide in his love. And I think that this happens in two different ways, okay? Um, and all this is important. I'm going to try to hurry up because I don't want to cut off the, the Q&A. Or we might just go long, okay? Go get a coffee refill if you need it. I don't care. All right. Number one, ab abiding in his love. How do we do that? Number one, by meditating upon it. It starts there, by meditating upon his word. Verse 9, he says this. He, he gives this little comparison. He's qualifying the love. He says, as the Father has loved me. You cannot understand your relationship with Jesus unless you understand Jesus' relationship to the Father. You can't. He says, as the Father has loved me, 
so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I say meditate upon it because that's what he's calling us to there. There's no way to, like, okay, as the Father's loved me, well, you have to ask the question, well, how has the Father loved him? And then you have to meditate upon that. Throughout, so let's, let's look at that quickly. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, before he had preached, before he had healed anybody, before he had walked on water, before he had done any miracles, at his baptism, at the start of his public ministry, the, the heavens are opened, the Spirit shows up, the Father is there speaking, and at his baptism it says that when he, Jesus, came up out of the water immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. God the Father shows up and says to Jesus, before he did anything, I love you, I'm proud of you, I'm glad that you're my Son what he does in the middle of his ministry on the mount of transfiguration mark chapter 9 uh, jesus is on the mountain with peter james and john and it says in a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud and he said this this is my beloved son listen to him same thing he said at the beginning he says in the middle at the very end of Jesus' life, right before he goes to the cross, in fact, just two chapters later in John chapter 17, one of the last things that Jesus says, we're going to look at this passage on Easter Sunday in a couple weeks. John chapter 17, verse 25, Jesus is praying and he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is now at the end of his life, so at the beginning of his ministry, in the middle, and at the end, from beginning to end, The Father just loved him. Jesus wasn't earning anything. He was the Father's Son. Because of what Christ has done for us, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Folks, he just loves you. You are not earning it. It is all of grace. Richard Baxter old school Puritan, he says, is it a small thing in your eyes to be loved by God, to be the son, the spouse, the love, the delight of the king of glory? Christian, believe this and think about it. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of the love which was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting, of the love which brought the son of God's love from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory. That love which was weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spat upon, crucified and pierced, which fasted, prayed, taught, healed, wept, sealed, bled and died. That love will eternally embrace you. Jonathan Edwards um, famously wrote these these resolutions when he was a young man and he would just say resolved to do so and so. His 25th resolution was this. He said resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. If you have trusted in Christ, if you've been born again, if the Spirit of God lives in you, when you wake up in the morning and feel unloved, you, you are believing a lie. And the devil prowls around to get us to not believe in the love of God because if we cannot abide in his love, we will not abide in him. And if we are not abiding in him, we will not be fruitful and it will rob the Father of glory. That's what the devil's all about is marring the glory of God. Now, I, I, more here, but i got to move on. We, we, medit- we abide in his love by meditating upon it, but secondly, 
we, we abide in his love through joyful obedience. Joyful obedience. And this is the one I could have spent the whole sermon just on this because I don't think we get this. As soon as I talk about obedience, you've heard me say this before, I think everybody hears legalism or works-based righteousness. That's not it. He goes on here, verse 10. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as, so he qualifies it again, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now we just looked at this. When Jesus was keeping the Father's commandments, was he doing it to earn his sonship? No. He was doing it in response to his sonship. He was doing it in response to the Father's love. In the same way the miracle has happened, if you believed in Christ, his love is upon you that is not going to change. You must start with the love of God and then in response, we keep his commandments. Not to earn anything. But just simply as the overflow, I say joyful obedience because right after that verse, verse 11, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Parents, why do we discipline our kids? Or let me ask you this way. That was a bad bad way to put it. Why do we have rules for our kids? Why do we tell them not to go play in the street? Because we want to keep them safe. We want to what? We want to work for their joy. Everything that God commands in his word, he is working for your joy. And I want to say this as a pastor to many of you. If Just take it for what it is. I, I, hopefully I haven't personally done it. But I want to apologize just on behalf of pastors and church leaders everywhere that have given you stupid rules that aren't in the word of God that you've been told that you have to obey somehow to garner favor with God. Because whenever man adds to God's commandments, that's what ends up, as people go, I, I don't know that he really loves me. I don't know that he's for my joy. Yeah, when man adds a bunch of ridiculous things to it, And I'm sorry, because that's happened to many of you. As you've been told that there's ridiculous things that you need to obey in order to keep yourself in the love of God, and it's a lie, and I'm sorry. God loves you just because he loves you. And if we will believe that his commands are for our joy and his glory, it changes everything. And we'll look forward to obedience. Sinclair Ferguson said it like this. He says, he does not love us if we love him. He loves us with an unconditional love. Therefore, we should love him. The message of the covenant is one of God's total free grace to his people. Of course, it calls for a response of total commitment. But notice the order. God's covenant love is not the result of our commitment. It is the cause of it. Let me say that again. God's covenant love is not the result of our commitment. It is the cause of it. How do we abide? We gotta understand what it is. We gotta understand that we just wake up in the morning and we're in it because we were created to do this. We abide through the word and prayer together, fellowship, communion, worship of God. We abide in his love. We meditate upon all that he has done for us and promises to still do. And he always keeps his promises. And we abide through joyful obedience not begrudging obedience, joyful obedience. And yes, there will be times when it's hard. Yes, we have to take up our cross and to follow him. But if we can be like Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy 
that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay. I have a couple closing illustrations, but I'm going to let that go. Who's got a mic? Kevin? I want to take... I want to take some questions. Any questions on this passage? And hear me when I say any questions. It's not, I'm not under any illusion that I like exhaustively covered this. There have been books and books and volumes of books written just upon these verses that we looked upon. But I just, I don't know, I just felt the need to do this this morning. I do, do you have any questions about what it means to abide, about what it means to be fruitful? Um, anything at all? Anybody? Maybe we do need to release the kids. I know I'll get some questions. Some questions then. Eric. Yes. Yes. Yeah, sorry. I, this this is the way everybody can hear. Thank you. Eric. Yeah. In uh, verse 11, when it talks about my joy yes. um, compared to your joy, is there a significance there just on what kind of joy he's talking about? Very good question, first of all. Second of all, I, I would say yes in this sense. It's supernatural. So think about the Beatitudes for a second. When Jesus says, you know, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Think about places where he says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Like that's, that's opposite of what we naturally think. The joy that he promises, and you're making an excellent point, it's his joy. When we pour out our lives, when we, as he, and he goes on here in this passage, if you, in the context, and he says, you know, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You're like, how is that, how is that gonna bring me joy? Because it is supernatural joy. As we live a life like Jesus that lays down our life, that pours out our life unto death, he promises as we pour ourselves out to fill us with him and with his joy. And so this is not a joy, it's not, and, and, and hear me, this is what, this is, this is the tragedy of the, of the garbage prosperity gospel and all of its, you know, uh, watered down diet versions that's preached in our culture where it's a literal exchange of give to get Give and then you'll, you'll get something back. That's, that's, even if that happens, that's not good news. I want the joy of Jesus. I want the joy of the Father. I want supernatural joy. I don't want joy that, okay, I'm starting. Did that answer your question? Yeah. yeah okay, yeah, did. good question. Good question. Another one. Who else? Anybody? I knew James would have one. I was going to be disappointed if you didn't. <laughs> wasn't sure if I felt obligated or felt like I couldn't. <laughs> no, I was just thinking, do you have any thoughts on verse 3? You're already clean because of the words I've spoken to you. I mean, we know from chapter 8 about being in the Word. In Ephesians yeah. 5, cleansing, washing the water of the Word. But like that versus a couple weeks ago in, in ch chapter 13. Yes. You know, the washing their feet, and Simon Peter saying, you know, 
you should never wash my feet. And if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then, I don't know, I was just thinking about yeah. it. Like, this being clean and connection with the feet washing. and Yeah, it's almost undoubtedly that there's a, that, again, this is all one conversation, you know, in one, in one evening. And so in the context, there's, it's almost certain that John wants us to, to see the connection with what he said back in chapter 13. The only thing here within the, within the metaphor that might be, um, that might be a little bit more nuanced, maybe, um, is that if you take it the way I, the way I tried to argue that I take it with takes away being take, takes up, is that there would be some, some context within the, the word picture that he's giving itself of branches that would maybe grow down and become a little bit dirty and that they've been, they've been lifted up in him. But I think the bigger overarching principle is just that there's always a cleaning, cleansing effect that God's word has upon us. So in Ephesians chapter five, he talks about us as the bride of Christ and how we are washed through the water of the word, right? Um, and here he says, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And again, I think that's also maybe in the context a, uh, a little bit of a setup or a foreshadowing precursor of what he says about his word abiding in us. Only there he's using the idea of like his word has, has made, us, made us clean. Um, and again, back in chapter 13 with Peter, when he says that, he's speaking about how he doesn't, you know, Peter doesn't need a bath, um, but that he's been clean, you know, because of the word uh, that was spoken to him. That didn't mean, though, that Peter was sinlessly perfect. But if we've received the word of the gospel, and uh, we are positionally made clean. But I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, though. To be honest with you, that would be my, that would be my take, though. Anybody else? If you have any comments too, just like, hey, this was, you didn't touch on this this morning, but this was really speaking to me this past week as I read it. Please feel free. Hey, oh, Conrad down here. Paul. The deeper you want to walk with the Lord, even abiding not approached correctly can be a trap, a demonic trap. I'm going to abide, I'm going to abide, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and it becomes a drudgery and it's not a delight. So if you find yourself in that position, because I have yeah. times, that I ask God, Lord, you know my heart, you know when I'm in Satan standing against me, make this a joy and a delight to me, yeah. and he'll do it. Amen. Yeah, for anybody that, appreciate that, Paul. It's a good point because any sort of legalistic culture that you grow up with, up in, and there's a lot of legalism in our area, and again, it doesn't matter if it's Amish, Mennonite, or Baptist. It's all, there's different flavors of legalism. Um, it, it's hard to just be still and know that he is God and just know that that's where we start with abiding rather than thinking that it's always something that we have to make happen. Uh, Jim, okay. Uh, in verse 14, it's, it has the word if. Is that really if? A condition? It starts with, um, you are my friends if mm. you do what I command. Yeah. Or do you see it maybe more as confirm? <sighs> Next question. 
I mean, I mean, I mean, yes and no. So let's say this: as a, a try to put flesh on it as much as possible. By God's grace, I have been born again, totally of His grace. But when I sin, I'm not acting like Jesus' friend in that moment, right? It doesn't mean that positionally I'm not still his son or not his friend. But in that moment, when I sin, I'm not acting like Christ's friend. Now this is the whole point here is like, the the point is not to say, well, can I just be that positionally and just never act like his friend? If If you're asking that question, that's a, you're in dangerous territory. The, the point is that in his grace, he has made us his friends. And that should be a, another motivation, a draw, that moment by moment, we can live in this friendship um, with him by, through obedience. I don't know. Good question, Jim. What do you think? I think it confirms, if you look at all of Scripture in total, yeah. I think that verse would come back to say it confirms yeah. that we're His. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. One more. Anybody? Rick Kozer. Worship team, you can begin to come up too. Um, in verse six, I don't, I, might be sixteen. I, I'm not sure. It says that uh, your fruit should abide. Yes. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. What do you? What's that mean by your fruit abiding? The fruit abiding is that it it will be fruit that lasts, just like the whole idea of abide that we're called to abide. In him, it's that idea, let me go back to all those definitions. Stay, wait, remain, continue to exist in, endure in, keep on, tarry, reside, dwell, or to lodge with. Like he wants us to bear fruit that isn't just going to fade away. Now here's, and that would be in sharp contrast with just the things that we do in the power of the flesh. Even good, even things that look good that we do for Jesus. Like I can't, I mean, time fails us this morning to tell of all the things that I, I have tried to do for Jesus. And it was not fruit that lasted. It was things that eventually kind of burned up and dissipated and, um, and probably also, too, brought more glory to me than to the Father. So he's talking about anyway, true fruit that remains. Go ahead. So why do you think, what, what's the, why does that phrase follow then, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you? Asking something in Jesus' name is, uh, is to ask according to his will. So as we're abiding in him and bearing fruit, okay, as we are seen to be fruitful branches, the more pleased the Father is to answer our prayers in Jesus' name, because we've been, because we've been abiding in Him, i.e., bearing fruit that leads to bringing His Son glory, that leads to bringing bringing Him glory. Um, asking something in Jesus' name 
is not just a little words that we take on to the end of our prayers. It's if Joe has an account at Kime Lumber um, for his construction business. If I go there and order something, I better be doing it in Jesus' name. Or, I'm sorry, sorry. I better be doing it in Joe's name. Otherwise, I'm stealing, right? So I have to go there in his, in his name. And it's the idea, as we, as we abide in Christ, we want what he wants. The Spirit is leading us to the same desires as Christ. And as we do that, then we pray, we get, again, it's this whole awesome cycle of joy because we're going to see the Father answer prayer because we're praying for the glory of the Father and the glory of Jesus. Am I answering your question? Maybe. I'm really not good at this, but we probably won't do it again. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Of course, you get the bonus question, Tracy. It's not really a question. It's just, you know, uh, as we're going through the regeneration program, we're discovering that, you know, we're all searching for true joy. We just, we, we want to be... We want to have joy, and, yeah. it, and we struggle with that. But in this passage, Jesus has opened his life up to us completely and wholly for us to pursue him. Yeah. And that's where we're going to find that pure joy is when we're pursuing him. And this passage just shows us how to do that. Yes. Amen. That's it. You guys stand with me. Let me give you one closing illustration here. I love to eat. I think about food almost constantly. Uh, the last couple of weeks I went for the first time out to the Blue Moon Bistro out by Holmesville. Good little, good little place. Not quite as good as Rebecca's Bistro, of course, but, uh, but close. But here's the thing about it. Just the Blue Moon and Rebecca's, if you've ever eaten at those places, there, there's almost always a line. There's almost always a line. People want to get in. And they want to they want to eat there, not because it's the biggest. They're not the biggest restaurants in the world. But because they're some of the best. There's a line, there's a desire to get in. Jesus is, talks a lot in this passage, you know, the whole thing, not just the section we looked at today. That one of the ways we bring him glory and that the world is going to know that we are disciples is by the way that we love each other. And I say that because I just, if I could, and we'll, I'll be done here, but guys, our, our vision for Mercy Hill, we're not trying to be the biggest, grandiose, but in this sense, if you're understanding what I'm saying, in, in this sense, I want us to be the best. I don't hear me, not, that doesn't mean better than other churches, just the best, and I want us to abide in Christ and to love each other in a way that makes people want to stand in line to get what we've got. And here's the thing, it's not us. It's not us. It's the Father's love for us. It's Christ's love for us. It's the Spirit in us. All to his glory. Amen, Father, thanks for today. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Just thanks for this passage. Thanks for this word. Thanks for making us branches. Thanks for choosing us and appointing us to this. In Jesus' name, amen.